Father, we want to thank you for this privilege to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship our Creator, our Father, and our Savior. You are worthy of extravagant worship and praise. Father, we want to thank you for the great name of Jesus. We thank you that you are more than enough for anything that we go through. Father, we come together this morning and we want to remember your benefits. We want to remember all that you are and all that you are for us. Father, we confess our need, our desperate need for you. We ask, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. Father, we pray that this would truly be helpful and it would be edifying to the body. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever worried about something only to look back and see that you really had nothing to worry about? Well, years ago when I was a cook at the YMCA camp, every summer I worked with a different team of international staff. One summer I was witnessing to two Muslim girls from Turkey. And they said that they wanted to come to a church service. And when they actually found out that we were having a baptism service, they wanted to come to that. They said that they have heard of baptisms, but actually never seen one. Well now, our work schedule was very demanding, so my thought was, you know, I could swing the church service, but I don't know about the baptism too. It might be too close, too close to the time when the meal was going to be served. So after thinking through it, it seemed like, you know, I think we can do it, but it's just going to be tight. Well, as it turned out, the entire kitchen staff wanted to come to the baptism service. We had one from Poland, one from Russia, one from the Czech Republic, and two from Turkey. So as I prayed about it, I was like, this is such a great opportunity. I I can't let this pass. Well, I was really nervous and worried and stressed about that day for a while, how this day would play out. When that day came, we did as much prep work as we possibly could. And then I dropped them off, went back to the camp, and just worked as fast as I possibly could. Well, when I went back to pick them up, it took a little bit longer than I thought to round them up and get them into the vehicle. So as the mealtime approached, I got more and more stressed that it wouldn't be on time. You see, there there were a couple hundred kids that we had to feed. And I remember praying, God, I just need 15 more minutes. Just 15 more minutes. And the stress actually became stifling to a point where I couldn't think clearly, I couldn't work effectively or efficiently, and I actually got to the end of myself. Well, the mealtime came, and it wasn't done. And the director of the camp came in, and my heart was in my throat. And he said something to me that no other director ever said to me before. He said, Steve, we're running behind on our schedule, Can we push the meal up 20 minutes? I was like, thank God. Thank God. Well, I looked back and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what the Lord wanted me to do. But boy, was I I worried. 
only to find out that he had it all along. But in that moment, I have to say the stress, the worry was really overwhelming. And you know, these days, worry, stress, and anxiety are a daily battle for believers and unbelievers. Whether it's politically, both domestic and foreign, socially, economically, financially, medically, spiritually, it just seems like the world is being turned upside down. Circumstances all over are causing turmoil that we all need to wrestle through. Well, fortunately, we as believers have the Lord, and he teaches us a lot in his word about worry and anxiety. And I have to say, while I wrestle with this myself, one verse that has been a gem to me is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, which says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. As we look at this verse today, we want to first ask why. Why is it a command for us to not be anxious? Well, one reason is that the stress from worry can have a very damaging effect on our lives. The American Medical Association noted that worry is the basic cause of more than 60% of all human illness and disease. 60%. It can cause chronic fatigue, anger, irritability, heart disease, and even diabetes. Worry can also make smart people do foolish things because it inhibits a small part of our brain that keeps you from functioning at your best. It can keep you from thinking clearly, even reasonably and logically. Worry is also damaging to our relationship with God because we're actually looking at ourselves and our own circumstances instead of acknowledging God and who he is for us. It shows that we have a lack of of trust in God and his provision for us. And the more we do that, the more we're led into a downward spiral to depend on ourselves, depend on our own resources to get through. So in every way, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, anxiety and worry are damaging to life. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief does not come unless to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. In addition, according to John 15.11, Jesus wants to fill us with his joy. And worry is a weapon from Satan to try to steal that joy, to try to steal that life. So in order to battle anxiety, we have to go to the source, to the heart of the matter. And that is literally our hearts. Now, when the Bible refers to our heart, it's not the organ that pumps blood. The Bible is referring to that place inside of us that holds our desires, 
our treasures, the things that we supremely value. That's our heart. Pastor Tim Keller says that there are actually five things that a person cannot live without. We all need these five things, and they resonate in the heart. These five things are meaning, satisfaction, identity, freedom, and hope. These are five things that all human beings need to live. Now, you can have a sermon on each one of these, but to quickly go through this, we'll start with meaning. We all need to have meaning. We all need to have that sense that our life mattered, that we have some sort of significance, that our existence made a difference, and somehow we contributed to society or something bigger than ourselves. If we don't have this, we perish. You know, there's a great story in the book, When Helping Hurts. It's a church that actually went into the, the projects of, a, of an inner city. And they delivered Thanksgiving turkeys to every household in that project. When they came back, they made a note. They were like, wow, there, there were no dads there. You know, they were surprised that there weren't any dads present. And the church felt so bad about that, that they came back at Christmas time with all kinds of Christmas presents for the kids that they delivered. They went door to door with Christmas presents. And again, they said, you know, there were no guys present, no dads present. Well, the pastor looked into it, and it turns out that there were a lot of dads in that project, but they were hiding out of sight because they were so embarrassed and hurt for whatever reason that they couldn't provide those things to their own families. They were hurt and embarrassed, so they were hiding. So if we don't fulfill our sense of meaning or have that sense, we perish. Next is satisfaction. We all need pleasure. In fact, the word recreation comes from the word recreate. We all need times to refresh, to enjoy, to replenish, and to renew. This is very important to us. You know, I was talking to a doctor of psychology about the 30-hour famine. Now, this person's not a Christian, so he was coming from a very worldly perspective. But he was, he was saying that he wondered why in, in these poor areas that these poor people in deplorable conditions, why do they have more children? They know they can't feed them. And they know that probably before the age of five, they would watch their children literally die of starvation. So there's no provision and no way to get provision. So why would they bring children into that kind of suffering? Well, he went to visit a third world country during a time of crisis and he found out why. He said the sexual experience was the only pleasure to be found. He said there was no other pleasure outside of that. And he said, it's that desire for pleasure that would drive them to even have more children, knowing that there's a great chance they would have to watch them die before the age of five. 
Now, whether you're in a third world country or a first world country, we need to have some time of satisfaction, some pleasure in life to exist. The next is identity. This is who you are, how you define yourself, how you see yourself. This can include your character, your personality, family history, where you've come from. You know, every person needs to have that definition of who they are. Sometimes we look for that in family. For example, when Vanessa met her biological grandmother at age 23, after never knowing anything about her, she was able to learn her nationalities, some medical history. You know, there, there was a, a, a realization and a sense of where she came from, and it helped her with her identity. You know, these days, there's a big movement to get DNA testing to find out what your nationalities are. And this is growing because people have that overwhelming sense that they want to know where they came from. They want to know their roots for their own personal definition. This is also why gangs are so big. You know, the youth want to be able to identify with something bigger than themselves. There's a, there's a desire for a sense of belonging and identity, something to identify with. And you really can't function without knowing anything about yourself. It's a need. The next is freedom. Freedom is having the desire, the ability, the opportunity to pursue what will make you happy forever. That's a, that's a long definition. I want to say that one more time. Freedom is having the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to pursue that which would make you happy forever. Now, freedom is a need. And when you see your freedom becoming limited, you can actually feel trapped. And it's that feeling of being trapped that can actually be suffocating. You know, one of our founding fathers, Patrick Henry, said, quote, give me liberty or give me death. He knew he couldn't live without having some sense of being free. And when your freedom is jeopardized and you're feeling that it's being limited, it can really take the life and breath right out of you. Lastly, we all need hope. Now, hope is defined as the confident expectation that something great is going to happen. It's not, well, I hope it doesn't rain today or I hope it snows tomorrow. No, this is a sure confidence that something great is going to happen. Now, we know that there's nothing in the world that can give us the satisfaction and the pleasure that we need. We were all created for something larger than ourselves, and since we are the crown of God's creation, only God can truly satisfy. And so whether you have a lot and things are going incredibly well for you, or you have a little, and you're going through some tough times, either way, we still need to know that things are going to get better for us. Things are going to work out. In some way, good things are going to happen for me. You know, there's a quote in a, in a famous movie where the main character says, quote, 
You have to have hope. Hope is what keeps you alive. You either get busy living or you get busy dying. The sad thing today is that many people don't have genuine hope. That's resulting in a suicide every 10 minutes in our country. Every 10 minutes there's a person committing suicide in our nation. We need hope so we can get busy living. These are things that everyone needs to live. And they are so vital that mistakenly, these things that we we get these things from can become our life. Where does your significance come from? Does it come from your job, your ministry, or your family? What happens in a fallen world if you can't work or you lose your job or you have to leave your job? Or what happens when things go awry with your family? Stress, anxiety. Where does your satisfaction come from? Don't you love it when you plan that amazing vacation and you're thinking about all the pleasure that you're going to get only to find out that the car broke down or the flight got delayed or the family got sick? What happens? Stress, anxiety. How do you define yourself? Now, for most people, when, you're, when you ask them, who are you, and you get past the name, it usually goes, it defaults to the role in life. Well, I'm a lawyer, or I'm a chef, or I'm a minister. But what happens when you can't do that job, or you lose that opportunity? You get stressed, anxious. Or if you define yourself based on your looks, and your looks start to fade, what happens then? Well, you're stressed. And you're anxious. How do you respond to things that threaten your freedom? And we see this happening in a big way in our country politically. As sad and as wrong as it is, our world sees having an unwanted child as a threat to their freedom. That's why so many pro-abortionists are so angry and passionate towards pro-lifers. They see us as a quote-unquote threat to their freedom. And because they respond out of anxiety and suffocation, they feel like their freedom is being threatened. So there's anxiety and stress there. What gives you a sense of freedom? Where does your hope come from? What happens? Is your hope coming from Something that's in the future, like a new job or a new place to live. What happens when things don't work out the way you wanted them to? Or when you have these things, they, they don't bring you what they thought they would bring you. Stress, anxiety, and worry. You see, many find a certain degree of these things from the world. So when circumstances arise that touch any one of these things, it brings panic, anxiety, and worry. Even depression can overwhelm us because these can occupy our hearts. To some degree, people get quote-unquote life from them, and they become supremely valuable, treasured, and much desired. So to mess with any one of these things 
means to mess with somebody's life. Life then becomes a daily striving for significance, satisfaction, and security. But thank God we have the gospel. Thank God we have the good news. In Christ, we can be set free from this slavery. You see, if Christ becomes our desire, our treasure, the one that we supremely value, then everything changes. Our definition of life changes. For Paul, Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, quote, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's definition of life, this is his definition of life. One name, Christ. So your significance, your meaning, your pleasure, your identity, your freedom, and your hope can all be wrapped up in one, and that's Christ. You see, Christ gives us our meaning and significance. Our value comes from the fact that we were made by God in his image. Now, to get a picture of this, if I painted something for you, and I gave you that painting, it probably wouldn't be worth very much. But if Van Gogh gave you a painting well, then it'd be worth a whole lot more. Well, why is that? Well, the Van Gogh painting was made by a master artist. You see, it's the artist that gives it its value. Knowing you were handcrafted by God makes you incredibly valuable. I tell the youth group all the time, you were made by God and for God. That's where your meaning comes from. That's where your significance comes from. Jesus said it best in Luke chapter 249. He says, quote, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And in John 434, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So our purpose is to display our creator's beauty in all that he asks us to do. Today he may call you to save a life. Tomorrow, he might call you to read a book. Next day, take out the garbage. Next day, he may call you to suffer a toothache or endure a hardship. You see, in Christ, however, every bead of sweat, every prayer sighed, every action done, and every pain endured has significance. It has meaning and purpose. One verse that fascinates me is Acts chapter 10, verse 4 where an angel comes to a Roman soldier who's a Christian, and the angel says to the soldier, he says, quote, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, when I think of memorial, I'm thinking Washington, D.C. I'm thinking pillars, you know, pillars and things to remind you, big things that would remind you of things done, things accomplished. Now, because of Christ setting us apart through his righteousness, everything that we do has this eternal significance. Every lesson taught, every meal prepared, every glass of water given in his name is remembered forever like a memorial before God in heaven. This is an interesting example. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, God tells Ezekiel to quote, Lie also on your left side, 
and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity, 390 days. And when you've completed them, lie again on your right side, 40 days. Now imagine for a moment being told that for more than a year, your job is to lay on your left side for 390 days, and then your right side for another 40. That's your job. That's your main job for the next year. And yet, this had eternal significance. See, it's not so much in what we do, but it's in who we are as works of art from a master artist. And we display his awesomeness in all that we do. That has eternal significance, whether it's laying on your right side or laying on your left side. In Christ, we also have the highest of all pleasure. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, all the things that give us pleasure in this life are nothing but shadows of the one who created them. John Piper once wrote, quote, God's treasure is vastly superior, and it lasts. It goes beyond death. It's better than money because God owns all the money, and he's our father, and we're his heirs. It's better than sex. Jesus never had sexual relations, but he was the most full and complete human that will ever exist. Sex is a shadow, an image of a greater reality of a relationship and pleasure that will make the most exquisite sex seem like a yawn. The reward of God is better than power. There's no greater human power than to be the child of Almighty God. And it goes on. Everything that the world has to offer, God is better and more abiding. You see, in the gospel, we get God. And you won't find anything in this world more satisfying than that. Jesus said in John 4.14, But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Our identity changes too. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, in Christ, you have a brand new identity. The Bible calls you an adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ, a citizen of an everlasting kingdom, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a people belonging to God a partaker of a divine nature, an overcomer, more than a conqueror, and the righteousness of God in Christ. You ever feel like that? No, a lot of times I don't. But this is what God calls us. This is who we are in Christ. The same rights and privileges that Jesus has now belongs to us. This also means that we've lost all rights and privileges to ourselves. 
Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, our identity is now wrapped up in Christ. We've lost rights to ourselves. And now we're embracing the new rights, the new privileges that we have in Christ. Your family is not your family's. It's Christ's family. Your responsibilities are not yours to carry. They're Christ's responsibilities to carry. Your house and car, they're not yours. They belong to Jesus. Your money is not your money. It all belongs to Christ. All of it was given to us to accomplish our Father's business. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, your life is over. It is now all Christ's. It's all wrapped up in him. Even your sin doesn't define you. Paul says in Romans 7.20, he says, quote, Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. See, Paul is saying, Yes, I still sin. Yes, I still confess my sin. But when I sin, that's not who I am. That's not my identity. I no longer belong to that. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That's who I am. Notice how he separates his identity from even his sin. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 4.3, He says, quote, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What Paul is saying is that you don't define me. In fact, I don't even define me. Christ defines me. So we're no longer judged by our job, our looks, or by other people or anything that we do. Christ is the one who defines us and says, who we are. Our freedom is in Christ too. If your desire is to do the will of our Father and Creator, then there is nothing in the universe that can stop you. He is the King of all kings. No government can stop you. There are no circumstances that can stop you from being and doing what God wants you to be and do. I tell the youth group all the time, when there's tests to pray for, SAT scores to think about, I tell them that there is no test or homework assignment that's going to keep you from being where God wants you to be. We're supposed to be faithful and do our best and to put forth our best effort, but that grade is not going to define us, and that grade isn't going to limit our freedom. That grade is going to be used by God to put us where we need to be. God is bigger than anything we would ever face. And he is our father. And because of the gospel, he is for us. And that means a lot when we feel like we don't have the freedom to do what we think is going to make us happy forever. You know, a good example of this is that I grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood. But it was small enough where everybody had to walk to school. So to get to the elementary school, you would have to walk near the high school. Now, many high schoolers had a lot of fun beating up, stealing from, or just picking on the elementary school kids as we went by. You know, it was dreaded. 
when we got to that area. At the same time, I had an older brother that was drastically feared by pretty much everyone, including his school teachers. <laughs> One day on the way home, there was this big kid crossing the street, was coming after me. And I ran, but he caught up to me. And he simply caught up to me just to push me around, you know, just to bully me. Of course, I felt overwhelmed. I felt trapped. And, and I was afraid. Well, another kid came running up to him and warned him, saying, Yo, this is Tom's brother. This kid's face went pale, absolutely pale. And all of a sudden, he says, I am so sorry. I had no idea. Oh, man, what, what am I going to do? I am so sorry. He went into a panic, and he says, look, if you don't tell Tom, I'll look out for you. I'll, I'll look out for you. And when you come by, I'll make sure everything's okay. Just don't tell your brother. You know, all of a sudden, boldness, confidence, right? I felt secure in walking home from school knowing I had a bigger brother. I felt free. And all the more, if God is for us, who can be against us? Almighty God is bigger than anything we would ever face, so nothing can thwart his will from being accomplished in us and through us. We can be secure enough to even lose our lives for his sake, knowing that he's holding us. Our hope is also in Christ. He's the only one that could honestly and securely promise that things will get better. He not only promises that we will have all the grace necessary to face what we're facing today, but he promises that circumstances will change for us. Circumstances will get better. When Christ returns, we will have the promise, we have the promise of a heavenly city with no corruption, no pollution, no sin, violence, run-down buildings, or any kind of darkness. We're promised that we would inherit the earth and rule over it with Jesus. We're going to also inherit all of heaven. We are going to sit on the same throne that Jesus sits on and rule it all with him. We're going to judge angels. We'll have brand new bodies, bodies that will never know sickness, disease, brokenness, or age. And best of all, we get to inherit the glory of God, which will only be giving us increasing joy over time. That joy never ends. It keeps getting better and better and more and more for all eternity. See, things will continuously get better. We have a secure hope. See, this is us in Christ, full of meaning, rich in satisfaction, clearly defined, unshakable in our identity, complete freedom, and we have a secure and solid hope. This is the fullness of life that Jesus came to give us. Now, having said all of that, Going back to our main text in Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, the command is to be anxious for nothing. But we know that that's a daily battle, as we've seen for all of us. We all struggle with this. But Paul gives us a key here as to how to battle the anxiety. In everything we do by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. You see, it's important to lift our concerns and worries to the Lord because he cares about those things. But here's where Paul teaches us how to pray. He says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, what's so important about thanksgiving? How is that so significant? The Bible actually says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. So this verse is commanding thanksgiving, not in, it's commanding thanksgiving in everything, but not for everything. You see, we don't give thanks for the things that really shake our world. We're not giving thanks that we lost our job or our ability to work. We're not giving thanks that we got sick on a vacation or that our house was vandalized or I had a car accident. We don't give thanks for those things. Those are tragedies. We're not thankful for them, but we can be thankful in them. You see, what happens in Thanksgiving is that when we start to be thankful, we're looking at the source of all good things. And so we can thank God for all that we are and all that we have in Christ through the gospel. You see, when we approach our petition for our earthly needs, Thanksgiving shifts our focus from who we are and what we have in the world, which is what we're praying for, it shifts our focus to who we are and what we have in Christ. While we lose our jobs or face sickness, we can thank God that that's not going to define us. It's not going to thwart my meaning or purpose in life. It's not going to limit my freedom to do what Christ wants me to do. These things can't touch all of those five things that, that we need to live. We can thank God for all that he is for us. You know, when difficulty and challenges come, we have a choice to not be thankful. We can choose to not thank God. But the result of not being thankful is in Romans one twenty one, where it says, because although they knew God, so they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the result of not being thankful to God in all things is a darkened heart. And it's a heart that spirals downward in self-reliance, self-seeking pleasure, an insecure identity, natural limitations, and really no hope. And the heart just continuously goes darker and darker. Matthew 24, 12 says, quote, The love of many will grow cold. So the more our society refuses to acknowledge God in thanksgiving, the darker our hearts will become and the colder the love. And this happens because we're focused on ourselves. 
You see, the more we think about ourselves, the more we think about who we are and what we have in the world, the darker we get. But if we approach God with our supplications, with thanksgiving for the riches and the glory that we have in Christ, our focus shifts on who we are and what we have in Christ. And the result is this. The, the result is, quote, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. You see, this peace that we want, this peace that we're, we, we really want to have, is a peace that can't be touched by circumstances in the world because it's not rooted in the world. It can't be touched because it's rooted in the most secure of all places, and that's Christ. You know, anxiety is something we all wrestle with and we have to battle against. It can and often does lead many to a darkened heart. The matter is in the heart as to what we truly delight ourselves in, treasure, and supremely hold valuable in our lives. If your definition is Christ, then you have a lot to be thankful for. And it's through that thanksgiving that we can shift our focus to truly what is unshakable and have peace instead of worry. In this day and age, we need the peace of God. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have you. I can't imagine life without you. Father, it wouldn't be life. Lord, we, we thank you so much for your sufficiency in all things, in our meaning, in our satisfaction, in our identity, in our freedom, in our hope. We thank you for all these benefits that you give to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to hold on to this, to keep this hidden in our heart, that we wouldn't depart for, from it, Lord. We truly want to desire you above all things. We want to treasure you and hold you supremely valuable because you're worthy. And there's nothing above or beside you, Father. Help us and give us the grace for these things that your peace would take over our stress. In Jesus' name, amen.